Go ahead and open up your Bibles today to Hebrews chapter 7. That's on page uh, 1004 if you're using one of the Bibles from under the chairs. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to start this morning by reading verses 1 through 28. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abram, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And that it continually reveals more to us of 
who you are and what you've done for us and, and who we are in light of what you've done for us. God, I thank you for this word this morning that tells us of the oath that you made regarding your son and his priesthood. And then it tells us that because he is our priest and because he's, he's different than the other priests in the Old Testament and in the time of the New Testament, because he's a better priest, we can have hope and confidence that we do have eternal salvation, that he is able to save us to the uttermost. Father, I pray that you would help us today by your spirit, even as Jesus intercedes on our behalf as priest right now, that, that he and your spirit would help us together this morning to understand more of what it means that Jesus is our priest. We pray that you would do this now as we look at your word together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So that's a big chapter. Uh, but the nice part about it is it's pretty much talking about the same thing over and over again in slightly different ways. So what, what we see in our passage this morning is in the first three verses, he's just going to introduce this guy named Melchizedek to us. We've already talked about him some. We talked about him some last week. We talked about him when he came up in chapter 5. And so he's just going to give us a little more information, some of which you already know. Uh, about Melchizedek. And then in verses 4 through 10, he's going to make an argument for the fact that this Melchizedek guy is greater than the other priests. He's greater than the Levitical priests. And then in verses 11 through 28, he's going to come back. He's going to take all that argument that he's made about Melchizedek and he's going to apply that to Christ. And he's going to show us how Jesus is better as a priest than both the Levites and Melchizedek. And so his, his whole point this morning is for us to understand how Jesus is a better priest than them. That's why he's bringing this guy up. It's not because he wants us to you know, be impressed with Melchizedek. It's because he wants us to be impressed with Christ as our priest. So we're going to see that as we walk through there. But first, I want to talk again a little bit about what we talked about last week. Last week, we did two main things. The first thing we did is we talked about kind of this overarching theme that we're going to see as we walk through Hebrews chapters 7 through 10, where he talks about Jesus as our priest again and again and again. And there's this, this definition of Jesus' priesthood, which I think we have on a slide. It's probably all the way at the end, though. Uh, it says this, Jesus is a better priest whose once-for-all sacrifice purchases eternal redemption and inaugurates a better covenant that endures forever. This is the main point of Hebrews chapter 7. This is the main point of Hebrews chapter 8. This is the main point of Hebrews chapter 9. This is the main point of Hebrews chapter 10. This is what he's talking about again and again and again. And each week, he's going to emphasize different parts of this statement. But all of them will come up in today's passage. Though his focus is on showing us how Jesus is a better priest than them. The other thing we did last week is we talked about Psalm 110 talked about Psalm 110, even though this is a series on Hebrews, because Psalm 110 is kind of the lens the author of Hebrews uses to look at this guy named Melchizedek who's going to come up in today's passage. And Psalm 110 is going to come up three times at least in today's passage. And so it's impo it was important for us last week to kind of get more of this picture of how Jesus is a priest, even though he's not a Levite, because that's going to come up again today. So today, again, we're looking at those three main things, which all add up to this statement about Jesus as our priest. He's going to talk about Melchizedek. He's going to talk about why he's greater than the Levites. And he's going to talk about why Jesus is greater than both. So the first three verses, he tells us about this Melchizedek guy. First, he tells us who he is. His name's Melchizedek. 
He's king of Salem. Salem is kind of a precursor to Jerusalem. Uh, he's also priest of the Most High God. That's who this guy is. Uh, he met Abram when Abraham slaughtered this group of kings. So Abraham wins this big battle. He's returning from his victory. And then this priest, Melchizedek, who's king of Salem, shows up in Genesis chapter 14. And Abraham uh, is blessed by him. That's the next thing the author of Hebrews tells us. He tells us who he is. He's king of Salem, priest of God, most high. And he tells us what he does. He blesses Abraham. He gives a blessing to him. That's going to be important later in the passage because that's part of the argument he uses to show how Jesus is greater than the Levites, how Melchizedek is greater than the Levites. Uh, so Melchizedek blesses Abraham and then he receives an offering from him. That's, that's what he does. Then... At the end of verse 2, he's going to start drawing some conclusions about this guy from the book of Genesis. So if you look at the second half of verse 2, he says, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So Melchizedek, Melk, Melek is the Hebrew word for king, only with a lot more snot in the pronunciation, but I'm not going to do that today. And then the last part, Zedek or Sadiq is the uh, Hebrew word for righteousness. So this guy's name means king of righteousness. So if you want one of your sons to be named king of righteousness, Melchizedek is, is your name. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he goes on. Then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. Salem's from the same Hebrew root that the word shalom is, which means peace. So he's king of righteousness by his name, Melchizedek. He's king of Salem, which is the place that he's king of, and that means peace. So he's king of righteousness. He's king of peace. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling us about this guy based on his name and the place he's king. So he's kind of drawing some stuff out of the book of Genesis in kind of a literary, poetic way. It's important for us to get that when we talk about his name because the next thing he's going to say is going to be even stranger to us. He says in verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Do people not have dads or moms? I don't mean like in their lives, I mean biologically. Right? We've got two people in the Bible that that's the case for. Adam and Eve. And they were dads and moms. So like they at least got half of it. He's saying this guy... No father, no mother, no genealogy. Then he goes on, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So he's saying, or he could be saying, doesn't have a dad, doesn't have a mom, doesn't have any kind of birth story, no genealogy. He uh, endures forever. Some people look at this and they say, well, this is clearly then some sort of pre-incarnation, pre-New Testament appearance of Jesus. So Jesus is just kind of busting on the scene in Genesis 14 before the incarnation to have this uh, interaction with uh, Abraham. The problem with that is that in the very, at the end of verse 3, he says that he resembles the Son of God, not that he is the Son of God. So I don't think the answer to this question is to say, well, he's talking about Jesus, because Jesus is the only other person in the Bible that you know, has no end of days. I think that what's happening here is that he is taking some kind of poetic license. He's elaborating on uh, the story of Melchizedek to draw some connections to Jesus. Right, we could say that what, he, what he's talking about here when he says that he doesn't have a father, he doesn't have a mother, he doesn't have a genealogy is not that there's no backstory for him, but that there's no backstory for him in the Bible. 
You can read the Bible for days and never get to find out who Melchizedek's dad or mom or ancestors were. You'll never read about his birth. You'll never read about his death. But that does not mean that he lived forever. Right? We don't see anything, any of the information about the guy named Apollos in the New Testament. Does anyone think that he didn't have a dad? Or a mom? Or a death? Right? We think, well, that information just didn't get included because it wasn't important enough to take up space on the page. Here, though, he's recognizing this and he's making some connections to Christ. And so he's saying he's kind of like Jesus in that there's no beginning of his life and no end of days. Uh, obviously, in the Gospels, we get a genealogy for Jesus. We get two of them. Uh, we hear about his miraculous mom and his adopted dad. We hear about his death, but not permanent death. And so he's when he brings this Melchizedek guy up, he starts drawing some things out of his name, and he draws some things out of the fact that his story doesn't mention his birth or his death to make connections to Jesus. So he's saying, this is why I'm bringing this guy up. I'm bringing this guy up at the end of verse 3. This is the point. Because he resembles the Son of God. He's a priest forever. And that came up last week in Psalm 110, after the order of Melchizedek. So this is who Melchizedek is. Then in verses 4 through 10, he's going to make his argument about Melchizedek. So the first thing he says is, See how great this man was, that's Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So he says, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Verse 5. The priests, the Levites, received tithes from people, from their brothers, though they're also descended from Abraham. And he says, verse 6, But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So again, he's bringing up what this Melchizedek guy did. And the reason why is in verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. This means that he's saying this is something that everyone will, ex- will accept. Just like before, I said, everyone has a dad, everyone has a mom. None of you sat out there and shook your heads and said, no, I know a guy who doesn't have a biological mom. Right? It's beyond dispute that everyone has a biological father and a biological mom. They may not know who they are, but they exist scientifically. Here, he's saying it's beyond dispute, it's it's accepted by everyone that the inferior is blessed by the superior. What this means is that Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. And everyone who hears that story, who sees that story, will accept it in this time. That's really important. That's the first kind of peg of his argument. Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek because he was blessed by him. Then he goes on. In the one case, ties are received by mortal men, that's the Levites, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's a weird argument. Right? It's not one that makes sense to us. Right? If Jen and I are at Walmart, and you know, some guy I knew in high school walks up and kicks one of our kids and says, hey, that was for that one time when you did this to me. She was in your loins when you did it. So, right, we would not see that as a normal thing. We wouldn't, oh, okay, that, 
you're fully justified in kicking her because I did that thing to you, and she was in my loins when I did that. That's crazy, but to them, it makes perfect sense. They had a collective mentality. They, they viewed themselves as sharing the same blood with everyone in their family. So they would read this and they would say, oh, absolutely, this makes perfect sense because everything they have is inherited from their ancestors. Their, their status, their position, their honor or shame in society. And so the fact that Abraham, when he received this blessing from Melchizedek, put himself in an inferior position to Melchizedek, he put all of his ancestors in an inferior position to Melchizedek. When he paid tithes to uh, Melchizedek, all of his ancestors are getting credit for the same thing, whether good or bad. In this case, bad, because they're being placed in an inferior position to him. So he's making this argument saying, this is why Melchizedek and all those priests like him are greater than Levi and all those priests like him because the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Melchizedek is better, Levi is worse. And he's going to go on to talk about how all of this applies. This is why he's bringing this up. He's talking about Jesus as priest. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, in parentheses, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron or the Levites? He's saying, if perfection had been attainable through that priesthood, why would we need another one? The answer is, we wouldn't. If we could have been made perfect through the Levites, through the Old Testament law, then that's good enough. We don't need anything else. So the conclusion on the one hand is another priest arose because perfection wasn't attainable through there. So he's going to talk about who this priest is, who this other priest that's had has arisen after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 12. He's building his argument kind of a rung at a time. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. It's going to be really important for him as he goes through here. So he's saying that perfection wasn't attainable through the Levites. So another priest arose. And now he's saying when the priest changes, the law must change too. Verse 13. For the one of whom these are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So people from Judah aren't priests. People from the Levites are priests. Last week we saw in talking about Psalm 110 that some of the kings in David's line did priestly things, but they weren't priests like the Levites were. They didn't serve in the temple. They didn't offer sacrifices for people on a regular basis like the Old Testament law specified. They were a different kind of priest. And so here he's saying that we have such a priest. We have one who's from a different tribe. He's from a tribe that Moses said nothing about priests from. He's from Judah. Because of that, because there's a priest of a different order, then we should expect that the law will change. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this becomes even more evident is looking back at verse 12. When there's a change in the priesthood, there must be a change in the law. He's saying there has been a change in the priesthood. This is more evident because Christ has arisen after the order of Melchizedek. So we should expect that in the next few verses, he's going to tell us something about this law that's changing. Verse 18, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, that's the law, the Old Testament law, because of its weakness and uselessness, in parentheses, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. He's answering the question that he asked all the way back in verse 11. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So he says, because this new kind of priest has arisen, there is a change in the law. On the one hand, this former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. So he's saying that Christ, as this new kind of priest, after the order of Melchizedek, he's bringing about a new kind of law. He says the old law, the former commandment, it is set aside. So the question we should ask there is, what does it mean that the law has been set aside? We're going to talk about this a lot next week because that's what chapter 8 is all about, the law being set aside, the new covenant that Christ inaugurates as a priest. But today, look at this. This word set aside is used twice in the New Testament. The first time is here in Hebrews 7. The second time, conveniently, is in Hebrews chapter 9. I think we have this verse right there. It says, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. That's Jesus. But as it is, he has prepared, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So this word here, put away, is the same word for set aside that we see in Hebrews chapter 7. So Jesus does the same thing to sin that he does to the law. What does Jesus do to sin? How does, how does Jesus put away sin on the cross? He kills it, right? He, he defeats it. He removes the penalty of sin. He removes the power of sin. He makes it irrelevant, Obviously, it still matters because it still tries to enslave us. It matters because he had to pay the penalty for it. But its power is broken. He has put it away. He's put it to death. He's, the author of Hebrews is using the same word to describe what Jesus does to sin as what Jesus does to the law. He sets it aside. A definition for this word is that it's a refusal to recognize the validity of something. Right? When we say no to sin, what we're doing is we're saying that isn't valid anymore. We're recognizing that it doesn't have any power. It doesn't have any authority over us. We don't have to give in. Christ has put it to death. He has put it away. And so because of that, it is invalid. We should look at the law in a similar way. He has, he has made it obsolete. We're going to talk about that a ton next week. But he's set it aside. He no longer recognizes it as valid. Because of Jesus' priesthood, the former commandment is set aside. But on the other hand, verse 19, this is the good part, the positive part, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. He's going to explain why we have a better hope. This is what the rest of the passage is about, is answering the question, why does Jesus, as a better priest, give us a better hope? And he's going to explain the better covenant part in chapter 8. So the first reason why we have a better hope is given to us in verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, that's Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So the first reason why Jesus is a better priest who offers a better hope is because he was made priest uh, by an eternal oath. He is a priest forever. And to tell us specifically why that's a good thing. But here, the point is that Jesus was made a priest in a different way than the Old Testament priests were made priests. They were made priests just because they had the right last name. They were appointed by men. And just look at the government of any nation and you'll see how good we are at appointing people to things. This one, this priest, Jesus, was appointed by God by an oath that's eternal. He was made a priest forever. The second reason why Jesus' priesthood is better is because he is the guarantor of a better covenant. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He is the proof that the law has been set aside and he offers a new covenant. I'm going to talk specifically about what that new covenant is next week. But Jesus himself in his priesthood is the mediator of that new covenant. He's the guarantor. He's the proof. There's some, some word that I couldn't think of this morning that like is this legal term that's part of a contract. And it's the money that people offer with the contract to make the contract official. It makes it so that the people are like, I don't know, held to the contract. Anybody know the word? Surety. I think that was it. Earnest. Surety. Whatever. What did you say? Consideration? Consideration. He's a lawyer, right? So he's right. No. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Jesus is like that with the covenant. He himself is the person who guarantees that it will both be inaugurated and that it will be fulfilled. And we'll talk about that more next week. He's the contractual consideration. The third reason comes in the next section. Jesus' priesthood is better because his eternal priesthood offers or ensures eternal salvation. This is why it matters that he was made a priest by an eternal oath. Verses 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. So you had to have a lot of them because they kept dying and you had to appoint new priests. And then that one would die and then you had to appoint a new priest. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He does not die, so he remains in office forever. Because of this, verse 25 He is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save completely, perfectly, always and forever. He is able to save those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Because He is an eternal priest, He's able to offer eternal salvation because He Himself is always there to back it up. That's good news. Right? We don't have to worry that at some point that this priest that we're, that's our mediator between God and us is going to die and then we're going to have to work with someone else. He's going to be there forever doing what he said he would do. He's going to be the one that's ensuring that it comes to pass. 
He is our priest forever, and he always lives to make intercession for us. And this intercession, it doesn't mean that he's just praying for us, right? Oh God, you know, help Dan because he hurt his leg today, so I want to make intercession for him. That's not what Jesus does. I do think he does some of that, but intercession, his mediation means that everything that we are, everything that we do, it goes through him to the Father. He stands in between us and the Father and intercedes for us all the time. This, there was a time where we were backpacking in New Mexico and we were really thirsty and had like, uh, you know, filters because we were backpacking. So we were trying to find a water source and there was one on the map and so we hiked to it. And when we got there, we found out that it was either like a well or a cistern or something that some guy had rigged up a pump to to fill a horse trough or some sort of animal trough. And so this water was nasty. Like stuff floating on top of it, you know, probably had all manner of horse bacteria in it. I don't know what bacteria horses carry. Um, but it was gross. And we didn't want to drink it, but we were thirsty. And so we pulled out our filters, and the filter has this little end that goes in clean water and filters out most of the gunk, but we didn't want our filters to get ruined from this one thing. So we put this, put a bandana over the outside of the filter and stuck it in there so it would filter out like the gross moss that was floating on top. And then we pumped the water out into our Nalgene bottles and drank it. And no parasites, which is great because parasites are bad. And, and the water, it wasn't horrible, even though we knew where it came from. Jesus' intercession for us is kind of like that filter. Right? We're that gross, disgusting water. Even, even as we're being redeemed. And all of that is processed through Christ's intercession for us to the Father. Only what comes out on the other side is way better than the filter. He always lives to make intercession for us. But we can't miss the part that puts some requirements on us. It says he's able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God. He doesn't make intercession for everyone. We're not universalists. We don't believe that every single person on the planet is saved just because of what Christ has done. We believe that every single person on the planet has an opportunity to be saved because of what Christ has done. It's those who draw near to God who benefit from his intercession. So if you're here today and you're not someone who he's making intercession for, I would encourage you to draw near to him through faith, through obedience, trusting that his work counts for yours, that he makes intercession for you. We have to move too. I think we should also recognize that there's no other religion on the planet that faith works this way. That priests work this way. First of all, that we have this once for all eternal offer. Second of all, that it's not based on us. It's based on his work. It's based on his intercession. That's Good news. He is a better priest because he offers eternal salvation because he has an eternal priesthood. The last reason Jesus' priesthood is better uh, comes in the last section. 
He's better because both he and his sacrifice are perfect. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So right here, we know that he's a very different priest than any other priest there is. He's a very different anything from anyone else. He is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. No one else can make this kind of claim. He has no need, like those high priests, that's the old ones, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He doesn't have to do that because he doesn't have any sin. He also doesn't have to repeatedly offer sacrifices for other people's sins because, at the end of the verse, he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. He only needed to do it once. You do something right the first time, you don't have to do it again. He did it right. His sacrifice was perfect because he was perfect. Verse 28, for the law, the old law, appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is a better priest because he's perfect and his sacrifice is perfect. It's good that we have such a great priest. Next week, in verse 6, to give you a peek, he's going to say this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, that's his priesthood, we've already been talking about how much better his priesthood is, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So what we're going to see next week is that as much as his priesthood is better than the Old Testament priesthood, his new covenant is that much better than the old covenant. His priesthood is better because he is a priest eternally, because he's the guarantor of a new covenant, because he offers eternal salvation, because his priesthood is eternal, and he's a better priest because he is perfect and his sacrifice is perfect. His priesthood is the only priesthood that saves. His priesthood is the only priesthood that's enabled to keep saving. And his covenant is... uh, It's good news. It's not law. It's not burdensome. I need to save that till next week. I'm excited to talk about his new covenant because it's it's one of the most beautiful things we have in Scripture. And the only reason why we have access to it is because he is the kind of priest that he says he is because he's greater than Melchizedek, because he's greater than Levi, because he's greater than Aaron, because he's greater than us. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, that's us, are blessed by the superior. We always exist in an inferior position to him. And even though we were inferior, he sent his son to be this kind of priest to save us in our inferiority. To set aside the law that couldn't bring perfection and to give us a better way. One in which he intercedes before us forever. 
So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to think about that. Both thinking on the reality that Christ's intercession will last forever and the fact that since it will last forever means it's happening right now. Right? I think normally we think about that in such a big way. Oh, like he's, he will be a priest forever. But the fact that he will be a priest forever means that he's always a priest. And if he's always a priest, that means right this moment he is a high priest who intercedes on our behalf. And so even as we go to him in prayer before we celebrate his death on our behalf, we should remind ourselves that he's there interceding for us. His better priesthood is in effect right now. Because it's in effect, we can have confidence not just that he has saved us, that he is saving us, but that he will continue to save us. His priesthood to us is good news. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of that good news, we should focus on the fact that his priesthood matters today to us. So take a few moments. uh, Think on these things. Pray through these things. Ask him as your high priest to search your heart and to point out areas in which you haven't uh, lived in submission to him this past week or maybe this morning. Uh, Repent of those things. Right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Then whenever you're ready, come forward, take the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you're new here, this isn't something that you have to be a member of BC to do. Right? We take the Lord's Supper every week because we believe that as Christians, we need to be reminded again and again and again and again and again of the gospel. And that's what the Lord's Supper does. It reminds us of the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. So if you're here and you've trusted in Christ for salvation, we invite you to come and celebrate his death with us. If you're not a believer, we invite you uh, not to participate because what it represents isn't for you. At the same time, I would encourage you to fix that, to talk to someone, to ask them what it represents and why they can't participate. Um, And if you have any questions about that, I would love to talk to you about it. But if you're a believer this morning, I would encourage you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Uh, I'll pray, and somebody's going to come and play guitar, and you can take those moments to prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you always live to make intercession for us. Thank you that you're doing that right now. That even as you're saving us and making us new, you intercede for all the broken places in us and all the broken things we do. We thank you that you no longer need to offer sacrifice for our sins because you have already offered the perfect once for all sacrifice for them. We thank you that you've put away our sin. You've freed us from its power and its penalty. That You've set aside the law. And that you've given us a better hope instead. Pray today that as we celebrate your death together and what it means for us. That you would just continue to expand our understanding of and appreciation for who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to do that now.